0: Hello again, I'm Tony Payne and welcome to The Painful Truth. And yes, it is The Painful Truth that you're listening to. That's different theme music than you might be used to. And as many of you will recognise, it's the theme from the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. Hard to believe that it's 1981 when that film was released. It's long been a favourite film of Christians. It certainly was at the time because it's one of the very few mainstream movies in which Christian themes and a Christian character are portrayed in a vaguely positive or at least thoughtful fashion and not antagonistically. In fact, of the many memorable scenes in Charit of Fire, one that often comes back to me is when the two old Cambridge Dons are looking out the window on the departing Harold Abrahams that they've just been talking to And they lament that his attitude towards his athletics is just not that of an English Christian gentleman. And John Gilgood, as the Master of Trinity College, says, Well, there goes your Semite, Hugh. A different god. A different mountaintop. Now, it's not often, you'd have to say, that the contrast between the two mountains in Hebrews chapter 12, is alluded to in popular culture. In fact, I think it's safe to say that may be the one and only and final time that it happens. What the Master of Trinity is saying is that Abraham's belongs to the God of Sinai, to the smoking, terrifying mountain of the law. And we, by contrast, he seems to be implying, have a different mountaintop, the heavenly Zion, The Joyful Assembly of the Justified. Now what's going on here and what's it doing in a mainstream movie? Perhaps the two stuffy academics are casting Harold Abraham's pursuit of individual athletic glory through professionalism as a kind of works-based striving for acceptance. Or perhaps it's just the hidebound prejudice of a self-satisfied elite against the upstart outsider, the pushy Jewish outsider? Or could it perhaps be a bit of both? And this complexity is one of the many layers of meaning that make Chariots of Fire such an entertaining and satisfying story. And at this point in the film, the British establishment in the form of the Cambridge Dons is arguing for the spirit of the amateur and arguing against the win-at-all-costs professionalism of the modern athlete, as encapsulated in Harold Abrahams. Sporting endeavours, they say, are about character. They foster courage, honesty and leadership, they say, but most of all an unassailable spirit of loyalty, comradeship and mutual responsibility. Which sounds all very fine, except that later in the movie, the British establishment, this time in the form of Lords Cardigan and Birkenhead and the Prince of Wales, try to dissuade Eric Liddell from precisely these values and ideals. They try to talk him out of the courageous, loyal, honest expression of his Christian beliefs about running on Sunday so as to win Olympic glory for England. And so which mountain do the British elites belong to now? The compromised nature of the establishment is highlighted by Little himself, by his character. He's also an outsider, a Scottish, non-conforming Christian. And in many ways, he does represent the calm assurance and joy of the heavenly Zion. He runs with a kind of fierce pleasure and abandon that his rival Abrahams can only dream of. And he runs with a sense of commitment and courage and integrity that the Cambridge Dons would surely have approved of. And yet, ironically... The climactic plot device of the movie, which is Liddell's refusal to run on Sundays, his Sabbatarianism, suggests that perhaps the old mountain of the law still has some hold on him. The movie closes, and in fact opens as well, with another twist, and that is the funeral of Harold Abrahams in a church, in the Church of St. Martin-in-the-Fields. Abraham's having converted to Christianity around a decade after the events portrayed in the film. And recalling all of this and thinking about Charit Sapphire* just makes me want to watch it again for the umpteenth time. And if you haven't ever done so, in other words if you're probably under 40, then let me highly recommend it. It's a great film. But before I zip downstairs and fire up the steam-powered Panasonic VCR and rifle through my VHS collection... Perhaps a word about why I've been thinking about of fire again after all these years. It's because I've been reading Hebrews again and thinking about just how important and climactic that Two Mountains passage is in chapter 12 for the message of the whole book. As you no doubt know, Hebrews sharply and pretty constantly contrasts the Old Covenant and the New. For all its glory, the Old Covenant of Moses is a shadow and a forerunner of the things that were to be spoken later, as it says in chapter 3. The Old Covenant testifies and points forward to something new and infinitely better that's coming, and that has now finally been revealed and enacted by the Son, the glorious Son of God. Israel sets out on a journey to the promised land of rest, and most of them don't make it. We, in the New Covenant... Have set out on a pilgrimage to a heavenly Sabbath rest under the leadership and ministry of our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, as it says in chapter 4, Jesus, the Son of God. And as the book unfolds, this contrast continues to be built and the contrasts mount up. There is a better and final revelation, there's a better servant leader. There's a better Sabbath rest, a better high priest, a better sacrificial atonement made in a better tabernacle. There's a better city, a better country, a better resurrection. And finally, when we get to chapter 12, there's a better mountain. And in all of these contrasts, the betterness of what Jesus and the new covenant has brought is a heavenly kind of betterness. In particular, the sacrificial ministry of Jesus as the one great and final high priest, takes place not in an earthly tent or tabernacle, or even on an earthly mountain in Jerusalem or Mount Zion. I guess his death takes place on an earthly hill in Calvary. But it's in heaven, in the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly holy of holies, that he appears and offers himself once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, as it says in chapter 9. And on the basis of that eternal heavenly redemption, the new covenant people of God arrive at their destination, at the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly mountain of chapter 12. It's where the book leads up to. It's what all the heroes of faith in chapter 11 were longing for but never saw. Not even those who, like David or Samuel, entered the promised land. There are two mountains in Hebrews, interestingly, not three. As the book unfolds, and Israel is redeemed from Egypt and receives the law and journeys towards the land of promise and has that temporary, ineffective sort of priestly ministry to accompany them. They nevertheless don't arrive. There's no earthly Mount Zion or Jerusalem in Hebrews. There's no temple. There's only a tabernacle. There are only two mountains in Hebrews, not three, because the promise to Israel was never about an earthly mountain, but about a better heavenly one. And it's to that heavenly Mount Zion that we have now come through the blood of Christ, through his infinitely greater heavenly sacrifice and redemption. And what is our response? Well, we must not refuse him who speaks, says the author in chapter 12, but fall down before him and serve him. In reverence and awe. This, of course, is the point of the whole book of Hebrews and of this Two Mountains passage in chapter 12. I do love this passage as a key plank in our doctrine of the heavenly church or assembly, and that's the context in which we often quote it. But its main function is as the high point, if I can put it that way, of the whole exhortation of the book of Hebrews. Consider, says Hebrews, consider what the eternal high priestly work of the Son has done for you. Understand where you now stand through the work of Christ. And for heaven's sake, quite literally for heaven's sake, don't give up now. Don't drift, don't droop, don't shrink back, don't let your hearts be hardened, don't refuse him who speaks, all those kinds of exhortations rumble throughout the book but instead draw near for help to the throne of grace that we now have access to. Lay aside every weight and sin that hinders us and exhort and encourage one another to stand firm and to grow in love. The Master of Trinity College was only half right, I think. It is a different mountaintop, but not a different God. The same God who spoke in darkness and fire on Sinai is the God who's now fulfilled all those promises through his Son and brought his people to their heavenly home, to the heavenly mountain and the assembly of the firstborn. Let us continue to serve him with reverence and awe. Thanks for joining me again today on The Painful Truth. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.